0: the FT. Hello, and welcome to the best of the Financial Times podcast. I'm Henry Mance. Today we're talking about Obama's plan to combat climate change, the first banker to be prosecuted for rigging LIBOR, and whether tourists to Greece actually noticed the country's economic chaos. But first, the Garrick Club in London's West End is sticking to its ban on women becoming members following a high profile vote last month. Sarah Gordon, our business editor, wrote about boys clubs such as the Garrick this week and argued that networking, whether at a club, a golf course or an opening night gala, should be open to all. Sarah joins me now. Sarah, what are the real disadvantages to women for not being a member? And I have to say that the Garrick has a reputation of being a rather stuffy uh, place that you might not even want to go for a drink on a night out.
1: Yes, well, I'm not sure that we as journalists would be very exercised about not being members of the Garrick, but I think if I was a lawyer, I would be more worried. Um, The Garrick has an enormous number of very senior Uh, barristers, solicitors, judges. Um, And given that the law in particular is a profession which is based very largely um, on trust and doing business, referring business to people you know, you certainly could argue, and indeed uh, Baroness Hale and a number of other eminent female lawyers are on record as saying they feel it is a a genuine disadvantage to them um, not to be a member of the Garrick.
0: It feels to me like people of my generation don't want to be in places where there are only men um they they're used to a more diverse environment and and these kind of restrictions are going to die out i mean the average age of of garrett club members i think i've read somewhere is around 70 or maybe even older uh these things can't can't continue to to be just men only can they
1: I mean, the Garrett wouldn't tell me what the average age of their members were. I mean, estimates go... Somebody emailed me yesterday and said he thought it was 81. But no, I agree with you. I mean, it is... These clubs are dying out. These rules are dying out. The issue is really one more of common sense. And how long these things take. I mean, a number of the other London clubs have changed their policies. And of course, one of the things that people brought up with me in the wake of the column I wrote was that, you know, women have their own organisations. Why does it matter? You know, if you want to be in a group of women, why should you be stopped? And if we want to be in a group of men, why is there anything wrong with that? The issue, of course, is that on the whole... Well, I can't think of a single women's only organisation that is really a part of the power structure in the way that the Garrick and other organisations like it are. I won't be holding my breath for when that changes. But in the meantime, clubs where networking that leads to professional success takes place, they should not be single sex.
0: Great. So no legislation, but amongst those clubs which are really important in the fabric of the establishment, they have to take a greater responsibility.
1: You put it better than I do, yes.
0: Great. Sarah, (laughs) thanks very much. Now, we're the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. That's what Barack Obama said this week, although for once the rhetoric wasn't his own, it was borrowed from Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. Obama was announcing a landmark climate change deal. The US has already promised big cuts in emissions of greenhouse gases, but Polita Clark, our environment correspondent, explained why this plan from President Obama matters.
1: What it does do is it gives a much better idea of how and when the US targets that they've already laid out might be achieved. And that in itself is very welcome news. Obviously, countries are quite good and practiced at announcing these ambitious goals. They're rather less good at delivering, as we've seen, which is why global emissions have continued to rise.
0: Will the plan actually work? Well, first, it has to come into effect. No easy task, said Barney Jopson from our Washington Bureau.
2: It's facing huge opposition from Republicans and some business groups, not all business groups, but some. And the way those people are going to try to stop this is in the courts. So the problem that power companies and manufacturers have is that they say this plan is going to push up electricity prices, it's going to jeopardise the reliability of the electricity supply. The problem that Republicans in particular Republican state governors have is that they say it's an infringement on their rights, that the federal government is telling them how to run their power sector, and it's not allowed to do that. And that issue is going to be the heart of a lot of the lawsuits. They're going to focus on states' rights. Some of the other legal challenges are going to focus on more technical aspects of the way this plan was drawn up, and they're probably going to go on for several years. Maybe they'll still be going on when President Obama's left office. But the most immediate thing is those opponents are going to try and get a stay order or an injunction in the courts to stop the implementation of this plan even beginning. They're very much aware that with some previous environmental proposals from the administration, they've gone into effect straight away. They've eventually been overturned in the courts, but by the time they're overturned, it's too late because industry's already spent a lot of money to implement them. So this time round, they want to stop this in its tracks before it even becomes reality.
0: But Obama and his fellow Democrats have supporters too, right?
2: The challenge that Democrats have is that even though other people in the electorate say, yes, climate change is a problem, we're worried about it and we want you to act on it, when you ask them to rank it alongside lots of other things like jobs and income, climate change still doesn't rise up to the top of the list, even for a large number of Democrats.
0: Internationally, all eyes are on a conference in Paris in December, where countries will hammer out an overall deal. Scientists have called for politicians to limit temperature rises to two degrees Celsius. Here's Polita Clark on whether that's possible.
1: It's already clear, because we already know what the US and China and the main emitters have offered, that it's not going to be enough to stop global temperatures rising above two degrees. So we're really waiting to see if countries can produce a deal in Paris that is somehow going to ensure that in coming years that level of ambition is increased. In other words, we need a lot more action from a lot more countries.
0: Now to banking. And this week started with the first conviction for rigging the interbank lending rate LIBOR. Tom Hayes, nicknamed Tommy Chocolate because he used to order hot chocolate rather than alcohol on nights out, was convicted on eight counts in London. First, a reminder of how he got caught from our legal correspondent, Lindsay Fortado.
1: He left UBS in late 2009 over a dispute over pay. Um, when he joined Citigroup, he slowly tried to test the waters with the other traders there, the rate setters, and see what he could get away with. But as soon as Citigroup found out what he was doing, it took a few months, but they slowly detected it and um, started an internal investigation and reported him and fired him.
0: Before long, Mr Hayes was talking to the serious fraud office.
1: He gave 82 hours' worth of evidence to the SFO. He gave names of individuals that he worked with. He gave his methodology. He explained everything to the serious fraud office. And then he decided to take a gamble and go to trial instead.
0: Hayes did manage to avoid US extradition, but the judge gave him 14 years in jail. That shocked the city, as our banking editor Martin Arnold explained. I had a call from a banker that works for one of the banks that Mr Hayes used to work for just this morning. You know, shocked at the fourteen year prison sentence that he's been handed down and comparing it with Kwaku Adaboli, the rogue trader at UBS, who got seven years for a two point three billion dollar fraud. So saying, you know why is it so severe? Now to discuss whether that sentence was in fact merited, I'm joined again by Sarah Gordon, our, our business editor. Sarah, fourteen years, it seems like a very long time. Is there any way of saying it was a serious offence. This is this is needed to send a message.
1: I suppose it's a relative question, isn't it? 14 years uh, may well have been merited. What Tom Hayes and his cohorts appear to have done is egregious. You know, it's a manipulation of an interest rate that underpins 30 trillion of contracts worldwide. Um, Nevertheless, I suppose if you look at what the average sentence for crimes against the person are and compare it to that, it does look rather long. I mean, you can get less than two years, for example, for GBH. So 14 years for manipulating an interest rate looks perhaps a little peculiar. Then also there is the bigger question, really, of who has been held to account for many of the things that went on during and in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And it's a strange world in which the management of the big banks has got away with it and the little people like Tom Hayes get um, more than a decade in jail.
0: This isn't the first time that people in financial services have gone to jail. One can assume that Tom Hayes isn't going to work in a bank again when eventually he does come out of jail. What's the sort of history of people like Nick Leeson, for example, a rogue trader at um, Bearings uh, a couple of decades ago? What's their history after after emerging from prison?
3: Well,
1: I mean, Nick Leeson, who brought down a bank, let us not forget, um, I mean, he had a very difficult time personally. His marriage broke up. He had cancer whilst he was in jail. But he has in fact rehabilitated himself to a certain degree. He now works as an after dinner speaker and is a sort of renter quote for stories like the one on Tom Hayes. So no, he's not working in banking, but he's clearly still making a living.
0: Sarah, thanks very much. Finally, if you're going on a holiday this year, you may be avoiding Greece. Chaos in the government, people sleeping on the streets, no money in the bank. Well, Matt Klein of FT Alphaville has long planned a trip to the country, and this is what he, as a humble tourist, found when he arrived.
3: Last year on vacation, I went to Spain and Portugal, and I had a sort of similar experience where, oh, like everything looks like it's fine. But Greece is even more extreme, and this is a country where incomes have fallen by a quarter, where employment has fallen by a quarter, where the establishment political parties have been completely destroyed as a consequence of this. You'd think, I would have thought naively that if you walk around, you could see some kind of sort of social disorder, at least like more homeless people or something on the margin, but that wasn't the case. I mean... I run into more homeless people in New York than I do in Athens, and I, I don't think that tells you much about you know, the state of the macroeconomy there. The trains are cleaner in Athens than they are in New York. I mean, these are, these are things that— you That's know, you don't... not a very high hurdle to clear. <laughs> fair, fair, but, but still. Public I mean, services were working. Right. The only thing in Greece that would make me think there was something wrong was that there's a, tons of graffiti all over Athens and another big city went to, Ereklio, in Crete. But the irony is it turns out that it was always like that. I remember reading about this guy. I was kind of curious. And you can find articles from like 2005, 2006, and like American travel forms. Like, oh well, man, I'm surprised how much graffiti there is in Athens. And it's, clearly, that's not a function of social discord or, or poverty. That's just the way it is.
0: So, what does this mean for travelers who think they understand a country by visiting it for a few weeks?
3: I would say we sort of have to be. More, not more reliant on numbers, but, but recognize that when a statistical agency does the work that it does to kind of get a sense of an economy of millions of people, they're probably going to get a much better picture than any individual person can, even if they're ex- making a great effort to travel and meet with people and, and, and see what's going on in the country, because your experience is always going to be a tiny fraction of, of the whole, and the people aren't necessarily going to show you what's actually happening in their own lives.
0: Wherever you're off on holiday, have a good break. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at
1: ft.com podcasts.
2: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.